2: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's all-star panel, our good friend Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist and tech founder who served as campaign manager for Joe Walsh's primary challenge to Donald Trump, and she was formerly a senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you.
1: Good to see you
2: both. And returning to the Roundup is the inimitable Susan Del Percio. Susan is a highly sought-after crisis communications expert and a political analyst at MSNBC. Susan, thank you for coming down from New York to D.C. to be here in studio.
0: It is so great to be with both of you in person.
2: <laughs> this is going to be a blast. On this week's Roundup, what to make of the flashbang of bipartisanship on a massive tech investment bill that just passed the Senate. Then we'll re-up our discussion on Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, and the filibuster, and what you dear listeners, had to say about our last brooch of this topic. Finally, we'll get to Vice President Kamala Harris's trip to Central America and the message she delivered on immigration. Also, in our segment exclusively for Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll take a look at what twice impeached ex-president Donald Trump is cooking up next with none other than Bill O'Reilly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale
0: system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level
1: today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Let's get started. So if you've been following along with the plight of a seemingly endless line of bills that have met their demise in the Senate, or at least seem likely to do so, you might be surprised to learn that the Senate just passed a quarter trillion dollar bill with a vote of 68-32. The bill is supposed to boost domestic semiconductor production, invest in the development of AI and other technology, but all with the goal of increasing our competitiveness and decreasing our reliance on China. This also comes on the heels of a recent barrage of cyber attacks against key U.S. infrastructure, technology, and businesses, including the Colonial Pipeline, Cox Media, and New York City's MTA, exposing massive cybersecurity flaws in critical systems that serve vast populations of Americans. So, as we've talked about plenty on the show before, the Senate has failed, thanks to Republicans, to come together on really basic measures, like a January 6th commission. And it is apparently uh, inevitable that other broadly popular legislation is going to die there as well. So first, why did they get this done and not everything else, anything else, Lucy?
1: Well, I think that China is kind of a uniting issue for both Republicans and Democrats. And when you talk to the donor class, when you talk to the business class, when you talk to stakeholders— across a range of industries and constituencies across the country i think there is a consensus that china and the ability to be competitive with china is a really pressing issue in this century and in part you know we're at a, a specific disadvantage when trying to compete with a country like china because china does not have the baseline uh, human rights guarantees that the us has the the chinese government has not uh, shown a lot of of, uh, reverence for kind of the kind of um, employee or sort of uh, assurances that we get in the U.S. And so that has shown in in several industries, including in the way, way diminished semiconductor industry. There was a big 60 Minutes that highlighted Mm -hmm. this well a couple of weeks ago about companies like Intel. You know, in the last 30 years— the us has gone from being a massive producer of semiconductors of like a producing like a third of the semiconductors in the world to around 10% and i think the pandemic itself has really laid bare kind of some of the challenges in competing with china that that really do transcend partisanship mm-hmm. so
2: so susan what does it tell you about the political calculation that Republicans and Democrats are making by appearing to take a stand on China? Why? Like, this is the one thing that unites them when there's so much right now that we can't even talk. Like, to me, the January 6th commission, the failure to come together on this seems like one of the most foundational pieces of legislation that they could get done right now. And yet we're focused on China. What is the political calculation here?
0: Well, first, it's not a political calculation that they say they needed to get something done with bipartisan support. It just so happens that it got done with bipartisan support because, like Lucy was saying, you have stakeholders on different sides of the aisle who want different things, but it unites against China. And what's more interesting to me is that, like, the semiconductor issue, the hacking issue, all of these things have been going on for such a long time that it has to get so bad Mm -hmm. and that that that, that forces action. But no one loses – going against China. I mean you almost have yeah. to say what took the other what, why didn't the other 32 come on board? Yes, but it is a uniting factor for within each party it is not something that necessarily unites the, the country. The other thing with China is the supply chain issue as well because not only semiconductors but remember the yes. PPE issue when we look at that, that's where all of it was manufactured and a lot of the things that we need coming to this country a year ago, Supply chain was a big issue, and that's a big problem for big business.
2: Yes. So I think conventionally speaking, people have felt that Russia is our enemy and China is our competitor, even though we talk about them often in the same breath. We have, you know, we've often thought about our economies being deeply intertwined, but now it seems like we're adopting a completely different posture, which is like a we can do it ourselves posture. So I think there's two questions here. First, is this, you know, the popular sentiment that that Russia is bad, China is just a free trade competitor. Has that dynamic changed, first of all, Susan?
0: Oh I don't think I don't see it that way you don't at see all. It that way. No, I okay. do believe that especially those at um the highest level of foreign government of foreign affairs policy, et cetera, within yeah. our government, outside, everyone looks at China as as a A threat to our country.
2: What about most Americans?
0: I think most Americans, they do, they'll see it as more of a vulnerability to our business side. But I think more and more as we start seeing what China's doing as they're developing certain technologies, people are concerned about it.
2: So, yeah. So, Lucy, talk about this new posture of we can do it ourselves. This seems to be sort of aligned with a lot of the isolationist uh, protectionist sentiments on the right, um, but it also seems to be in the in the best interest of the United States.
1: Not just the best interest of the United States, but also in the best interest of the world. Uh, when you look at how a country like China wants to flex its muscle, I mean, it goes far beyond trade agreements. It goes far beyond sort of you know how's the dollar. Mm. You know, ranking and kind of sort of competitiveness. Yeah. It really goes to culture, and uh, there is, I think, a great example of that in recent weeks is that an actor in a Fast and Furious movie, John Cena,
2: Cena, John yeah. Cena, former wrestler, yes. WWE. Yes,
1: yeah. yes. I, I, I like Jim Schudo on CNN. Have also never seen a Fast and Furious movie, but <laughs> I get it. I, I get it. Okay, great. Um, but. John Cena was doing a junket promoting this movie, and he just sort of, in an offhand way, referred to Taiwan as a country. That's right, yeah. And that was a sort of mini-crisis. It was It was actually, at the time, it reminded me of some of the weird kind of like tiny things that led up to World War, World War I, right? Mm-hmm. Like, with, you know, uh, but basically he then, it turns out he speaks fluent Mandarin— John Cena. Wow. So he then issued this apology via video, just groveling about how he's so sorry that he referred to Taiwan, you know, that way and so, so sorry. And he would never do anything to disrespect the Chinese. Well, that's appalling, right? But it's to the point that, you know, the entertainment industry in the U.S. feels so much at the mercy of China, right? And John Cena, meanwhile, Is putting forward a position that Taiwan, which we should think of as a sovereign nation, is not a country. And that's a problem because China is constantly on the brink of taking over Taiwan. And so so it's it's not just about who's a larger producer of semiconductors. It's that China wants to use its economic might to have an impact in all kinds of Mm. other areas that – really impact not only American competitiveness, but I would say global stability.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but
1: there's also going to be one other
0: That's thing a that comes up. different kind of up. power.
1: It is a different kind of power. And when we start looking
0: about where inflation is heading in this country, and then you start wondering if we're going to go it alone and not rely on other resources, especially China, which has kept the price of our goods down yeah. overall. yeah. American people may have a little different opinion about what it means to be America first. Yes,
2: so we're going to see a
0: different. We could see a different dynamic there.
2: Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the cybersecurity side of this because there has been this rash of ransomware attacks. Susan, you mentioned these have been going on for a long time. Yeah, it's not recent. It's not recent, but 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 there have been some recent ones. Right. There's been more attention paid to them anyway, Um, and they've been on some pretty critical infrastructure, including energy and transportation. Um and I want to talk a minute about Catco and Johnson. They both used this term victim blaming when they were talking about holding the companies who were uh held hostage by these ransomware attacks, uh, holding them accountable for not beefing up security measures in advance. When they knew that this was happening and had the opportunity to do so, they said, you know, it's not okay to blame the victim here. But I want to first of all there's a there's a rhetorical I think trick going on here and Susan I'd love to hear what you think about this because this term victim blaming comes from the left right it comes from victims of sexual assault sexual violence those kinds of things and they're seemingly co-opting this by making companies out to be the victims when in fact the negligence of these companies Actually produced millions of victims in the form of degraded and, and decreased infrastructure services, and you can use the Colonia Pipeline as an example, which is uh, you know a company that supplies forty-five percent of the East Coast's fuel. Um, Equifax resulted in a in the, the the leak of hundred and something million Americans' private uh, financial credit data. These victims are not the companies; they're the people who these companies are supposed to be serving. So how do you, what do you make of this rhetorical jujitsu that they're trying to pull?
0: Well, it also doesn't allow to the fact that the biggest uh, part, the biggest group of folks that actually can, that have to give into ransomware is governments is municipal and state governments. So, First of all, look in your own backyard before you want to start. <laughs> so, you know, look at what's happening in states like New York. You want to look at look at the MTA. Yeah. And that's what's really frightening is that when you look at whether it's power grids or transportation systems, that puts fear in people. Yeah. And that's why this idea of victim blaming is also very it, – it's scary because it, it, it brings up an alarm that isn't yeah. necessarily the right way the right- to handle it. And I find it kind of funny with some of these Republicans who want no regulation <laughs> yeah, on business yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. They're the victims. <laughs> to all of a sudden say, oh, well, we have to regulate this and we have to step <laughs> yeah. in and take care yeah, of all of this. Yeah. It makes no sense whatsoever.
1: Well, it's also, you can make an argument that we should reduce regulations, but you can both want to have fewer regulations and believe that private companies that we basically subsidize by, I mean, Colonial Pipeline, yes, it is a private entity, but it is getting all kinds of special treatment yeah. from the government. This is not like some internet startup in, <laughs> right. you know, Austin or something. <laughs> so you can bet that Colonial Pipeline benefits from all kinds of government infrastructure, and yet they're so Bush League. This is something that Colonial Pipeline CEO oh, said during the the hearing, a hearing in front of Senate, the Senate Homeland Security Committee. He said— he admitted that his system, that their back their end, essentially, didn't have multi-factor authentication. That, for people wondering mm-hmm. what that is, is like, you know, when you log on to Gmail and it says, we don't recognize this device. Like, we're sending a text message yeah. to your phone. Yeah. Tell us the code. I mean, yeah. we Everybody all do that. Everybody is familiar we with that this now. We do that all the time. Because they make you do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the back end of Colonial Pipeline Did not have multi-factor authentication, but their CEO said it did require, quote, a complicated password. It was a complicated password. So I want to be clear on that. It was not a colonial one, two, three type (laughs) password. That's unacceptable. That's just so unacceptable. And then Maggie Hassan, the senator from New Hampshire, said, I've talked with small school districts in my state that are better prepared for cyber attacks than Colonial Pipeline was. Oh so it's it's just sort of like a have it both ways, both that these companies are going to not only benefit from oh. being subsidized by the government all the time and in some cases be bailed out by the government when they find themselves in these crises. But also there's just no accountability for things that we would reasonably expect in the 21st century from the company that supplies nearly half of the gas on the eastern seaboard. But here's a problem, and I want your take, Lucy, because this is your
0: bailiwick. (laughs) How is it that Congress is the right Entity to deal with this, considering they're still struggling yes. how to log on to yes. Facebook. They, yes. they, they are not prepared for this. At least the, the the elected officials, there are competent staffs, there's no doubt, yeah. staff members. But they are not the ones who should be setting this. They can't even set their like iPhone alarm. A lot of
2: them still call their Blackberries, and yes, some of them still carry Blackberries. Correct. They're email machines. That's what they call them. They
1: also got hacked recently themselves through a service called iConstituent, which provides a ton of members, constituent services, you know, like when you email your member and you get There's 60
2: of them, 60 house offices. So who
1: should be, I mean, who should be looking at this in a way that can really
0: make us safer? Because I don't want my congresswoman doing it.
2: no, (laughs) no. Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Yeah, good question. Gosh, I my oh my my younger <laughs> <Sorry>. my <laughs> younger small government self can't believe I'm saying this. The goldwater girl in me cannot believe I'm saying this, but it seems like we might need to rejigger federal agencies to be more responsive to this. You know, in campaign tactics, there's a, you know, in campaigns on campaigns and I'm sure this applies to all kinds of organizations, you know, you have like a lot of new campaigns aren't doing any of this, but you would have like Ron's yeah. Ron's expertise. You'd have like field person, a, f- a fundraising person, then you'd have a digital person. Mm-hmm. Digital, well, everything, what does that is mean? Digital. everything is digital. That's now. so stupid, That's right. you know. And then we'd be like, well, digital is also data, yeah. right? It's like yeah. no, these are all every 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 part of your campaign should be yep. focused on digital. Every part of your campaign should be focused on the data yeah. set, and it's sort of that way a little bit there's not it's it's very much still an afterthought it's you know very it's a real kind of like 20th century paradigm even though so much of governance is now online right mm-hmm. i mean i mean in in the brightest spots the best things happening at the state level legislatively is things like better online you know like voting resources right like curing your bad like we we have to stop acting like our digital world is is not the same as our physical yes. world because and it's all, our infrastructure. It's in all infrastructure. It's, it's right. our infrastructure. You're absolutely That's exactly right. right. You're absolutely right. I think, I think um, Secretary Pete would, like to hear you say that, Mayor
2: Pete. <laughs> come on the show,
1: <laughs> uh, Susan Del Percio, longtime Republican strategist. Our internet is our infrastructure. Ooh, it is. Boom. No, but
0: how is it not? Seriously, you're, right. you're yeah. absolutely right. How is it not a critical yeah. part of our infrastructure? Yeah,
2: okay. but also, and this, this, you are absolutely right. This gets at why Europe passed GDPR. It gets at why California has taken their own data security and privacy measures into their own hands because the federal government is not equipped, not prepared to look at this in a sophisticated way.
0: Yeah. But the issue with that logic is then look what Ron DeSantis does.
2: Okay. Fair. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to, but but go ahead.
0: (laughs) No, but with his regulation on on social media, like there are responsible players in in Mm -hmm. government and Mm -hmm. then we need people who are responsible to the players, the people. Yeah. Yeah and 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 again maybe it is an agency or someone who has to be like held accountable for setting the standards because to have 50 standards that's why we have the election system we do when yeah. it comes to yeah. our election day so yeah.
2: if you are a company who provides critical infrastructure to to big uh, to american populations you have to we have to have some mechanism for holding you accountable for for, for those services, and also if you store incredibly sensitive personal data, we have to have a way to hold you accountable for taking the proper measures to secure that data. Because it's – but like there's n- – Which government means is
0: securing not, which, it sometimes from the government. So exactly. Which is really important. Yeah. Uh, you know also very it. important. You can't allow yeah. the government just to be able to key into it right. and look wherever they want. Well,
2: yeah. Well, that's a whole <laughs> different – yeah, <laughs> don't, don't tell the NSA, but uh, – Anyway, um, okay, let's. But this is a good segue though, because I want to talk about mansion and cinema and the filibuster. Speaking of roadblocks that are hampering the Senate from getting just about anything else done, which by the way, actually just to go back to, do you think that this this flash in the pan of bipartisanship, Susan, actually going to condition any of these people to do anything else together? this Session, or do you think this is that's it?
0: I don't think there was bipartisanship because there was no negotiation. Sure. There was not in no, spirit,
2: but on paper, there was. Well,
0: on paper, <laughs> there was, but there was no compromise to be had. There was oh, no negotiation. I mean, Got there was something a was tiny bit, a teeny tiny bit. But th- th- the, the general idea of doing something against China was in everyone's best interest. Yeah. I don't think they had to come together just by look at the number of votes when yeah. you get over 60 votes yeah. for something. Yeah. They weren't coming together, trying to hammer out a tough decision, having two different policy sides That's come right. together and That's right. figure out how to deliver. There was none of that. So I don't consider that this just happens to be something like a broken watch twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> like this just happens to be something that they yeah. all went, you know, the yeah. majority went for. But I do not believe it was an act of bipartisanship
2: by any stretch. Back to the roadblocks that are stopping the Senate from getting anything done. So, Joe Manchin wrote an op-ed in the Charleston Gazette-Mail headlined, Why I'm Voting Against the For the People Act. In it, he essentially makes the argument that because no Senate Republicans support the bill, it isn't bipartisan and therefore can't be good policy, rather than actually enumerating substantive objections to the bill's provisions. He also refutes his party's arguments for altering the filibuster, stating defiantly, I will not vote to weaken or eliminate the filibuster. Here are a couple of other choice quotes from his piece. They've attempted to demonize the filibuster and conveniently ignore how it has been critical to protecting the rights of Democrats in the past, which is a a fair point. He also says, if I can't go home and explain it, I can't vote for it. And I cannot explain strictly partisan election reform or blowing up the Senate rules to expedite one party's agenda. Also, this week, Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema said that senators don't need to abolish the filibuster. They need to change their behavior. Let's take a listen.
3: Well, as folks in Arizona know, I've long been a supporter of the filibuster because it is a tool that protects. democracy of our nation, rather than allowing our country to ricochet wildly every two to four years back and forth between policies, the idea of the filibuster was created by those who came before us, the United States Senate, to create comedy and to encourage senators to find bipartisanship and work together. And while there are some who don't believe that bipartisanship is possible, I think that I'm a daily example that bipartisanship is possible. Not just this trip today and tomorrow that John and I are doing, but the work that John and I and I and many other of my colleagues in both parties do on a regular basis. So to those who say, we must make a choice between the filibuster and X, I say, this is a false choice. The reality is, is that when you have a system that's not working effectively, and I would think that most would agree that the Senate's not a particularly well-oiled machine, right? The way to fix that is to change your behavior. Not to eliminate the rules or change the rules, but to change your behavior.
2: Meanwhile, one of Kirsten Cinema's biggest backers, former Arizona Attorney General Grant Woods, who was a Republican, has been saying he doesn't think Cinema or Manchin belong in the Senate if they don't support removing the, quote, Jim Crow filibuster while losing some of these basic voting rights that are central to our democracy. So before we dig in to this, um, we talked about this last week on The Roundup. Um, with two Democratic strategists operatives. And I was the one arguing that we should blow up the filibuster. And both of them were saying, saying no, actually, we need to think more carefully about what this could mean in the future when Republicans take back the House. We got a lot of feedback, a ton of feedback in our DMs and email inbox uh, from listeners who very keenly pointed out that should Democrats opt not to reform the filibuster out of caution that Republicans could take the majority and then pass their own agenda. And, uh, uh, that they would toss it when they come back in power anyway. So first of all, thank you to everybody who reached out and said in unison uh, the, the, the same thing. Um, but I want both of you to respond to this. And there's a lot there's a lot to play with here. But how are you thinking about that calculus? Um, would Mitch McConnell ditch the filibuster regardless of what Democrats do if they hold the majority?
0: He already did something even worse than that. He did it on a Supreme Court yeah. pick. Yeah. A lifetime right. appointment that affects everyone in this country for potentially decades. He already got rid of it. He yes. changed it to a 50 vote. So to me, the, he's already shown that's going to happen. And make no mistake about it. Mitch McConnell or any Republicans get control of the Senate again. The filibuster has gone. Yes. No totally question. Totally gone. Totally gone. Yep. Now, here is something I would put, though, to some Senate Democrats other than Cinema and Manchin. My, from what I'm understanding, there is about anywhere from 12 to 15 other Democrats in the Senate mm-hmm. who do not want to be asked, mm. where do you mm. stand on yes. blowing not- up the – but they're not there. Right now, Joe Manchin loves being the lightning rod, mm. and he is. But he's taking on a lot of water. I guarantee you there are a lot of people willing to buy him a lot of drinks
2: <laughs> every night <laughs>
0: for just what he's doing and being, in fact, that lightning rod and not letting a lot of other members do it, including Senator Schumer, Yeah, who's the majority leader, although I don't think we actually know that because we don't see him too much acting like I, a majority leader. You raised like, this
2: point actually a couple days ago, which yeah, I think is totally right. It's, it's unbelievable. Where, where is Schumer on where all of Schumer?
0: this? Where is Schumer? Now, there could be some, you know, double- Double secret probation plan that I don't know about when you become a majority leader um, in the Democratic Party, but assuming there's not, it's it it is bizarre. But I do think it's also because if he pushes it too yeah. hard, we're going to see six, eight, ten yeah. senators yeah. coming out against it. Yeah. But to what Cinema said, you know what. We're not going to see bipartisan at sixty. You could see bipartisan at fifty-four, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you get mm-hmm. some people. You want bipartisanship, Joe Manchin? Mm-hmm. Put it out there. Let Schumer put it for a vote because you may not get, and it, not on the filibuster, yeah, yeah, yeah. but on on, oh, on, on, other, any, on infrastructure, literally for example, anything
2: else. Yeah,
0: except for HR one or Senate one.
2: How about the January six commission? There I mean, you Come go. on.
0: Yes. there okay. you would. There, in fact, you would have. Yeah, you do. You you have enough votes for it. Yes. To pass it, not with 60, but with bipartisan support. Yes. So what's your objective? Yeah. Not to blow up the filibuster or to have bipartisan built into it? Bingo.
2: Those are two completely different things. And my question to, to Joe Manchin after all of this blustering is, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? Who are you trying to convince? And and how's that going? Because right? if you take because- the
0: vote, if you take the vote and it fails... Okay, then you're forced to take the next step, to take the next action to get support for it. And now they're not. They're just saying there's not enough votes and we can't talk about
2: it. Yeah, exactly. So, Lucy, as much as Joe Manchin may love being the lightning rod in all of this, what this comes down to, especially when it comes to voting rights, is that— one, he he wants bipartisan support for pro-democracy reform so that we don't lose this whole fucking experiment. Part right. of my language. Right. But when you don't have any, when you don't have any support on the part of another party to preserve democracy, what do you do? When the consequences of, of waiting for bipartisan support are that you lose the entire thing, which is where I think we're headed, if they don't do something, then how do you defend that? Like, anyway, how do you think about this?
1: Well, this is, I think, more systemic problem for all Democrats than just mansion and cinema. As Susan said, where is Chuck Schumer? Democrats are in control of the Senate, the House, and the White House. And they really seem to be forgetting that. Yeah. They really seem to be forgetting that. And Mitch McConnell is behaving as though he is still in control. And he's not, except maybe he is. <laughs> <laughs> I think that mansion and cinema are. Very different animals in this. Mm,
2: um, that's a good point. I
1: think they're behaving badly in different ways. Okay. So I think that cinema is behaving badly in doing things like not showing up to vote for the January 6th commission. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of an aside, but she really reminded me last week of how much I think that if it were possible, we should make politicians, uh, elected officials, like wear body cameras, honestly. Because she then mm. gives this little statement where she's like, "I had a family matter." Well, uh. you work for the fucking taxpayers. Yes. You work for the voters <laughs> of Arizona. Yeah. What the hell is your family matter? Yeah, Senator Cinema. Yes, excuse She're, my she, language. She's your home
2: state senator, by the way.
1: Exactly. Yeah. She is my home state senator. And the 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 sort of losing the support of something someone like Grant Woods, who was a, a, a Republican Attorney General mm-hmm. from you know, bygone years, who crossed the aisle in her first race to support her against yeah. Martha McFally. We haven't heard that name in a yeah. while. Thank God. is really something. And he's now saying she's enabling a Jim Crow relic, yeah. right? That is what the filibuster is. She's always been this way. She is a person who, in Arizona, in the, you know, it's, uh, 10 years ago, was like buddies with Russell Pierce, the author Mm. of SB 1070. She always really strained to show how bipartisan she was. And that made her a very effective state legislator. And it is also what put her in Congress. Um, She was part of the wave of Arizona moving blue. Mm. And she's the first Democratic senator from Arizona in forever, right? She also, before that, um, won a congressional seat that had been Republican forever and so some of this may be like a psychological block for her in terms of thinking about how she yeah. does or does not retain her power. Yeah. Um, you know, Mark Kelly, the other senator from Arizona, is, is actually up next. And, and I think he is going to win handily. And maybe that will create a shift for cinema. But I think that we need her to get to that shift yeah. much sooner. So- because
2: Arizona's purple. Right, Right. We're not talking about West Virginia.
1: Right. We are certainly not talking about West Virginia. So in the case of cinema, the bad behavior is things like not showing up for the January 6th stuff and kind of sort of like acting like she doesn't have to be accountable for voters and to Americans. And that's unacceptable. The filibuster stuff is a little more complex, as it is with Manchin. In the case of Manchin, as you said, the filibuster issue and the support for the For the People Act, those are also discrete issues. First of all, he was used to be a co-sponsor of the For the People Act, and I think we should just sort of Ooh, flag that. In, I didn't know. In that. 2019, he was a co-sponsor of the bill that he now says he will not support because <sighs> it's not bipartisan enough. But Joe Manchin now saying so, just when you think about that, so Joe Manchin is saying that his calculus for whether or not to support a piece of legislation that has all these outcomes that he claims to care about is are Republicans supporting it that actually is a calculus, and Susan's alluding to this, that should come in when you're on the floor having a debate about floor amendments, Mm -hmm. or you know, could I get Republicans to support this if I make a concession? Maybe we pull out some of the campaign finance provisions or whatever, things that would bring them to the table. He's saying that basically he will not vote for it because Republicans are not voting for it, but it's this sort of like a mind trick because Joe Manchin not voting for it Gives Republicans cover to not right. vote for
2: it. It's circular. I, I, yeah. I take <laughs> a
0: little. I take a, just a little nuance on that because, first of all, I don't think everyone who supported that um, sr one in the Senate would say they would vote for it today. I don't think That's it's fair. just John. That's I just don't think it's Joe Manchin. Yeah. And because of what sr one is. And there's so much issue with campaign financing, you know, people, you know, taxpayers don't want to spend to get those annoying calls or mailers. They really don't like that. And I think if you looked at the the John Lewis Act, that has a chance, of course, we should recognize that, guess what? The House hasn't reintroduced it this session. So it's just, it's not even an option until it gets voted on. But that is a cleaner way. And that, to me, is a place to really... Put everyone on the spot hmm. because it eliminates some of the issues. And I'm not saying they're not worthy of debate, but campaign financing, dark money, et cetera. Put on the John Lewis Act. Yeah. See what happens. Right. Then again, take that vote. Get to 54 yeah. and not have it passed yeah. and then Joe Manchin what are you going to say yeah. how do you get it done if you think that this is important yeah.
1: that's mm-hmm. worth is that mm-hmm. worth blowing it up once you take the vote yeah. and and by by not only i mean well first of all in terms of sort of democrats priorities pushing the john lewis voting act forward would actually be a lot more impactful because there's now a you know this is runs Ron's expertise. But really, one of the most central pieces of what's missing now because of the not passing the John Lewis Voting Act is this question of pre clearance, yeah. which is so, so important yes. around redistricting, gerrymandering, gerrymandering, redistricting. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, which is happening now.
1: And that is happening now. And so that would be very impactful. But the other thing that I think is really a very valid criticism of Manchin is that he's not saying what he would vote for. So this is the moment. The moment is to say, I don't think I can get Republicans to vote for um, a rejiggered public campaign finance system. Um, I don't think that they're going to go for uh, the kind of like uh, accountability measures on sort of like finding corporate actors and I want a tailored down bill. That would be a completely sort of statesmanlike thing to say, ergo, I've, you know, I'm introducing this pared down version, right? And I'm putting in calls to Susan Collins and yeah, Mitt Romney and yeah. Lisa Murkowski put them and Bill on Blast. Yes. And he's not doing that. I so. don't even
0: think he needs to do that
1: though. I really <laughs> I, do. I yeah. say put the get the John
0: Lewis Act out there. Vote on it. Get, get it yeah. out of the house. Schumer should put that on the floor. It's yes. the cleanest thing. Put it on the floor for a vote. Let it be there. Whatever however it was make but them you know vote what? on it Manchin doesn't mean to even ask his Republican friends to vote for it just have a vote
2: yeah let and them say no
0: exactly like, because, I mean, here's the
2: thing we should distinguish between Lucy you brought you I think you're getting at this between policies that are broadly supported by constituents of both parties um and policies that are supported by the politicians from both major parties because here's the thing here's what happened in 2020 Democrats won. And guess what was front and center? Protecting democracy. That was the agenda. They won. They're in control. House, Senate, White House. Why, ha- Why? I, like, I appreciate the need to pass legislation to invest in tech infrastructure to protect us against the rising threat of China and on the global competitive. Fine. Why haven't we protected our democracy yet? It was number one on the list.
1: Well, something that actually you said a few weeks ago that has been in my mind a lot and kind of haunting me is this idea that, Everyone outside of MAGA world, right, is yeah. talking about concepts that really are concepts like t- democracy or that right. seem really abstract. And yeah. even even the you know, voting rights act stuff, I mean, that's kind of abstract too, right? And so I've been thinking about the, just sort of like the rhetorical challenges around that and how to get around that. And one of the ways to get around it is to get it over with.
2: Yes. Yes. <laughs> get it
1: over with and move on. But yes. the kind of dragging it out is then these are still going to be really pressing issues. You're still going to see an assault on yeah. elections. We're seeing yes. more states following behind. Pennsylvania is going to try to do an audit like Arizona's. They're just, the the hits keep coming. Yeah. And so just get it over with. <laughs> and that's why it goes back to Chuck Schumer. Like, for example, on COVID
0: relief, they took out the $15 minimum wage. Why not put a bunch of bills, individual bills on issues like that,
2: mm-hmm.
0: on the floor for a vote? Yes. Start moving yes. even the smaller pieces of legislation. Call them out for a vote. They pass. The, great. They don't. Then then you know what to fight for and who you're fighting. Put them on record. But and, and putting them on record, I've now think is kind matters of a less. quaint idea matters because less. people's records like they yeah. the constituents like it doesn't necessarily it's it matters, don't get me wrong, but it matters for the history books, not necessarily for the next election. But, yeah. but
1: also what a great win that would be on the <laughs> on the fundraising side for these Democrats. Yeah. if they could point to some nah. wins. And the other thing that is I mean this is inside baseball, but is really important is that as we were talking about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act a, a moment ago, and and the idea that it's very pressing because of being in a redistricting yeah. year? Yeah. The longer that they wait to pass, say, an updated, yeah, uh, whatever Anything. iteration it is of the Fourth People Act or whatever, the the harder it will be to have an effective date of that bill. That is when it goes into law and becomes law. Yeah. So you know, you not you you Congress need <laughs> to get some of these things passed so that they can have an impact before the next election. It actually m- may be too late to yeah. have much of an impact on gerrymandering or redistricting. Yeah. But in 2022, I mean, you have state legislatures that w- are flirting with ways to ignore the votes yes. of the people. And that's Not just 20- flirting. They're doing right, it. They're doing it. Yeah. And, and, and really trying to jerry rig the system yes. against voters. Yes. And so passing these bills early is good not only to kind of get away from this sort of rhetorical challenge and sort of idea that they're just sort of like, you know, in the clouds and not focused on everyday issues like, I don't know, competitiveness with China, I guess, but it also is just the sort of the reality of pass it soon so that states can start making the changes and updating, you know. Voting yep. systems, election yep. processes, the so that it's in effect by right. 2022. Yeah. And you have three people who
0: are former Republicans yes. or current Republicans yes. who are telling <laughs> you this. Yes. Like, just think for a minute, because we know how we Republicans— We know what the fucking Republicans end, right? will do. Right. Excuse me. Exactly.
2: I need to stop doing that, but yeah. we know what they're doing right now.
0: Correct. Yes. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily bashing what Joe Manchin or the Democrats are doing for, for the sake of it. We're yep. telling you how yes. to win. Yes. So maybe just— Take heed? Someone should listen just a little like <laughs> well, here because it's not your – I mean, yes. your listeners, yes, I know that they, they yes. hear that. But this is the insider game. This yes. is about all of the talk that we hear coming out of the halls of Congress on both sides of the aisle. This has become, Governance is no longer about compromise. Right. It's about a zero-sum game. Do you win or do you lose? Yes. And once in a while, you get something like the China bill.
2: Exactly. But it, oh, it's isn't that real, cute?
0: Right. Isn't that <laughs> that's, that's so nice? That's special. But it really does come down to winning and losing, at yeah. least on the Republican side yep. that I've seen for, for a couple of decades now. Yep. So yeah. this is how you beat it. And this, this is how you win. Because you've got to stop caring about the overall big philosophy yeah. of something, and just go for the win.
2: You have to care a little bit more about winning, and like you need to fight like Republicans. I've said it before, but Democrats need to learn how to fight like Republicans. Well, you know do. what's
1: a Republican idea? What? The Overton Window, right? Yeah. The idea that you push something really, yeah. really big, That's right. and then you you push, and and this Overton Window is named after a guy who was the I love story. EVP of the Mackinac Center in Michigan, which is a libertarian from conservative free market think tank, and he had this idea that you just you try to push through the biggest package you can with the idea that it's going to be pared down because you're shifting the conversation, you're moving the conversation over. That is what I thought Democrats were doing with the For the People Act. Yeah. And that's sort of what you're proposing that they they do. And then why are they not... Why are they not doing yeah. the thing? Why does it only audience. come down to the fil- Like, why are we only talking about the, the
2: filibuster right. When, right. It right. Comes when it's to actually that. about protecting democracy, but, right? But,
1: but also, if they pursued this approach yeah. and said, okay, fine, well, this is so urgent that we are just going to pass a narrower version of the bill that focuses on um, guaranteeing voters' access to the ballot and sort of, like, free and fair elections and election integrity, then— you're also shifting the conversation about the filibuster. Yeah. Because then you're putting, like, Republi- Republicans at the center, you know, the we all know, we don't need to say their names again, we all mm-hmm. know who they are, in a place where, I actually think you might bring some of them to the table. I think you really could. And then you're in a situation where then you're maybe at 50-something, yeah. right? And you're just a few votes shy of six. And then the discussion of, uh, we're not saying going to end the filibuster, then the discussion about, bringing legislation to the floor with a, by a simple majority really changes a lot. Totally
2: changes. Uh-huh. This totally changes because then you can say, we have a bipartisan piece of legislation that is being held back by this antiquated feature. Yes. We need to move forward, America. It's time. But I have a one last question on this topic. Where's Biden? Where's Biden?
0: I actually think Biden's doing the best thing he can right now okay. for, for getting something, in hopes of getting something done, whether it's by— the I think the misinformed way Manchin thinks, or the way we're talking about getting it done, Biden adds a whole nother layer and a, no, a whole nother reason for Republicans not to get on board, not even to be talking. It just gives them an out. I think when you put the president now, and it's not because of him as Joe Biden, the president, it's just the the current president of the United States is either a Republican or yeah. a Democrat, That's and right. that leads. One yeah. side to be fighting him or her. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. Do you to. think
2: if he had, if in his very first thing that he did in office, do you think if he had said, get democracy reform done, that it would have mattered?
1: I don't know. I mean, he took office two weeks after January 6th. Right. And in a way, I mean, he, so there was still this impeachment trial looming, mm-hmm. right? And so that was so raw. Yeah. And it is hard to do several of the sort of, all of those things at once. And tens of thousands of people were still dying. That's
2: right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. coming
1: up all the time. Like, why hasn't Biden done this? Why hasn't Harris yeah. done this?
2: Well, we, we're, we're still just a coming out of, coming out of yeah. a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> such an unsatisfying finish. Okay. <laughs> in her first foreign trip as vice president, Kamala Harris went to Guatemala and at a joint press conference with Guatemalan President Alejandro Yamatai, she delivered a blunt message to any would-be migrants. Let's roll the clip.
0: I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come the United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. But we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. And I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back.
2: While the Biden White House has made it Their goal to soften the rhetoric and project more compassion abroad than the last administration, they plan to continue the policies of turning back most adult migrants. Um, Nearer the beginning of the year, Republicans had hoped to pin a sudden surge of undocumented minors seeking asylum at the border on the administration for being too soft on immigration. We remember that. But clearly, President Biden, Vice President Harris are not the open borders radicals that their detractors tend to accuse them of. Um, Susan, first reading that quote, listening to that clip, um, that was a very firm position for Harris to take, uh, don't you think? She's she's taking more fire from the left than the right on this. And so, although the right is now mad at her that she hasn't gone to the southern border yet, but why... What does the administration get out of her taking this rhetorical approach, delivering this message?
0: There's a few things in place. So if you look at it from the policy point of view, it is a strong message to be sent. It is the right message that needs to be sent for even humanitarian reasons. Do not try and take this trek. It is dangerous. You will most likely die before you get to the border. This is a—I shouldn't say most likely, but there's a substantial chance that you will. So that's the policy, and it's not wrong. But here's the politics of it. When you look at anything that uh, Vice President Harris does, it's through a different lens than what we typically see a vice president through, because we think of her as becoming a nominee in four years, Mm -hmm. not eight. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of attention on her put on by the right. The the part from the left is is, is a policy fight that has been back and forth, and— you can argue even Biden has moved off of his position in the primaries to a more conservative one when it comes to the southern border. But it wasn't just what she said in that message that got her in trouble on this trip. It was the interview with NBC's Lester Holt. That interview, she even, you know, her handlers have said, did not go as well as you would hope. And that's where everyone's just kind of piling on. And then again, that is that the policy but the politics of it, yeah, but there is no there's no win for the vice president here. Let's make it clear like if, if it was so easy just to go down to the, like the southern border yeah. or to Guatemala or to Honduras and say, "Hey, I'm here, I'm saying this and make it snap away and with the snap make it go away, yeah, someone would have done it so, before,
2: yeah. 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 It not happened. Also, just so our listeners are familiar with the interview, this is where she sort of fumbled through a repeated question about why she hasn't gone to the southern border, and he held her feet to the fire. And, and she said, yeah. I haven't
1: gone to Europe and she, either, and yeah. then that's where it exploded. Right. Yeah. I am so angry okay. about that interview. I Let's am go. so angry at Lester Holt. I am so angry about that situation. First of all, why did Lester Holt ask that question? He asked that question because every day— on Fox, on, you know, whatever, Daily, whatever, whatever. Candace Owens, you name it, you name sort of like right wing. Caravan Watch
2: 2021. Right. Yeah.
1: Every day they talk about how Harris has been put in charge of this issue and she has not gone to the border. And they say it enough for as much as everyone. Yes, of course, we have a liberal media, but The media actually does a lot to kind of fall on it, fall over itself, you know, to make sure that they're addressing things that are said on Fox. This is, like, Republicans and the right are just, they're just much better at this than the left. They're just much more effective. So they've been, this is like, like when discussion of Hunter Biden became mainstream, right? Because the right just said it enough, enough, enough. They just keep saying it until it's like, well, the mainstream media won't even talk about this. And then they talk about it. That question is so stupid.
0: So I totally disagree. So, I can't wait to hear why you say this because I can't disagree with it more. So, okay.
1: So let me let me show my Please. sort of the generation I came up in. So have either of you seen the movie Clueless? Oh yes. Okay. okay so you know Clueless, Cher Horowitz, the the protagonist, is sort of Yeah, remake yeah. of Jane Austen's Emma. Fun fact. Huh. Anyway, so Cher at one point is talking about how she needs her dry cleaning to go for her driver's test. And she says to her stepbrother, basically asks him uh, to—whatever—to ask the housekeeper named Lucy if her dry cleaning is back. And he says, why don't you ask her yourself? And she says, Josh, you know I don't speak Mexican. And he says, Lucy is from El Salvador. It's a completely different country. This is like 90s comedy, but that is actually what is happening right now. Kamala Harris is in the Northern Triangle because the Northern Triangle, which is Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, is the sort of epicenter of the caravans, but of the immigration issue. And so that really is, I mean, and that is an area that has had a very, very tough time in recent years, in part, I think, because of some of the policies of the Trump administration, you know, the Obama approach with which the Biden administration is now coming back to. I mean, Harris is there in in the backdrop of proposing basically a re-up of, of, of a new $4 billion program that would try to improve living conditions, make it less violent, restore some of these Central American economies, which have shrunk majorly even just in the last year among COVID. You know, she's—the the clip you played comes as she tells guatemalans don't come here but also that the us is setting up immigration centers mm. in those countries so that you can like legally apply to become you know get residency whatever this is where the issue is right the border is a reflection of the issue of what's going on in the northern triangle and so maybe she could have responded more eloquently but I, I
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> Susan is gesturing wildly. I, still, I can't wait. <laughs> I
1: still just really reject that Lester Holt is carrying water for Fox. Mm. <laughs> frankly, in this way, okay. But Susan's going to tell me where we go. No, I, I just don't think that was okay. I think your response,
0: if if the vice president would have given that response, that would have been satisfactory, and it wouldn't have asked for the repeat. Because That's for fair. most Americans, when you hear there's a crisis at the border, where do you think the crisis is? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's
0: it's a good at point. the border. That's, That's a good fair. point. So I, you know, like I agree with everything that you said as far as policy and fact and, and, and the, what's actually happening. The, the source of this the migration is the – source of the problem. The, yeah. Right. And the source is in the Northern Triangle. So – she could say, I can go there, and but that's where everyone is familiar with the problem at the border. But what causes it and why this trip is so important is that I am going to the Northern Triangle, to those countries, to show the American public why we must invest time and money and resources and that this is the core problem that we have to address, not just what you see as clickbait on—, mm. on on the southern border yeah. and put it that way and if she would have gotten that Ooh, response that would have been a
2: home run and
0: I'm not saying I'm like so smart about this I mean I did I, no, I, 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 I can imagining her saying this now and then she, like I, I yeah. think she wanted to say that I think she was already there I think she was on defense because it was annoying I think uh, the question yeah. got under her skin yeah. more uh-huh. than her inability to answer it in a really w- well way and I think yeah. that she basically said well, I haven't been out. I haven't been to Europe either. Was a I know, I'm going to get that's, killed that's, for it, but it is a rookie move because it, wasn't it was not a good move. It, it was, wasn't a good move. I don't was,
2: think you're going to. No, I think that's totally fair to say. And you know what, Mike and I have talked about this before. I think he's talked about it on the podcast before. He knows her from back when she was a candidate in California. Right. right. She's not that good on her feet on but the spot. She She's just is usually smart, not. And she She's does smart. know the answer. Right.
0: And she knew it. And that's what caused yeah the problem. But So I'm not, I'm not opposed to anything that you said as far as where the problems lie. Yeah. Just where she should have handled this better. And the fact is, is that the spotlight is on her more than ever. Yeah. It may not be fair, but that's the hand she's dealt. And like she says, she's been, she's out there fighting. She knows how to, she's had, you know, people go against her before. She knows how
1: to fight back.
2: Yeah.
1: I think that there's a, a piece of this, and not to go too far afield of this particular topic, but as you say, Vice President Harris is under an unbelievable amount of scrutiny. And what it really bothered me about Lester Holt's introduction of that question and is that it really is a Fox News talking point, mm. I believe. And it is a Fox News talking point that is in kind of like a broader sort of um sort of uh, book of talking points that are about her demeanor. And I mean, l- like right wing stuff about how she actually smiles too much. She has a fake smile, which is like. Oh my God. But that's not what Lester did. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. I, I know. I, I know. Yeah. He didn't. He would never say something like that. But it's all part of this larger sort of set of new attacks. Like, she, one of them was she spends more time doing, she's spending more time doing magazine cover shoots like then she is going to the border it's like well first of all i don't think she's doing magazine tons of magazine cover shoots but she is our first female vice president first south asian you know on on yeah. and on and on uh so yeah it's really historic and so maybe it struck a nerve with me because it's in this backdrop of just
0: Oh, because you that, see
2: the body of rhetoric around it. I don't disagree, it.
1: and yeah. ne- but
0: here's the thing: is that it was a network news interview, so whether it be NBC, CBS, or ABC, yeah, their audiences are different than cable news, yeah. And I think to properly set up the piece for what you're doing with a major interview like the Vice President of the United States yeah. and a very significant trip, yeah. You have to set it up now. Yeah. I I agree with your 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 uh, your re- reasoning on this, Lucy. That it is a Fox News talking point. It is something they don't let up on. It doesn't mean you can't explain the situation and yeah. not yeah. necessarily be going. Right. into it, absolutely right. Running a Fox News point. That's absolutely right. I
2: would have loved to see her hit the home run because because it, it, it could because that actually could have changed the conversation. It could have it could have changed the narrative for at least a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week, what stories are you following that may have flown under the radar and that may influence our politics in some unexpected way? Susan?
0: I am focused on the lack of uh, cities, states, and our country overall not hitting our vaccination targets by a lot. It looks like we're not going to hit our national target of 70% by 4th of July. New York City, for example, was hoping to hit their their 70%. It looks like they'll get very close. And that – New York City especially is what concerns me. I think it sends up a bigger picture. When you see how hard New York City was, yeah. how we're not at 70%. Like we should be at 98% yeah. because yeah. people really – beyond politics, like they saw it. They lived it in such an intimate way and in, in your face Everybody way.
2: remembers the body bags.
0: Yeah. And that we see, you know, when you look at the the states on the lower level of a percentage of like Mississippi and other places, it is by county. And you're seeing deaths still happening in larger numbers than they should be. And with potential other variants coming, I am, while I was so optimistic with how things were going the last couple of months, I am really concerned about what this means and what it says, not just politically, because there is that political... And you know, issue there, but for our economy. And if we don't get those vaccination numbers up, we're going to be susceptible for variants. And we'll see that come the fall and that will hurt our economy. And that is the one thing I think is we we have to pay more attention to.
1: It's, it's so important.
2: Yeah. Lucy.
1: So we've talked a lot about democracy reform and also elections and maximizing, uh, people's ability to participate in elections. And this week, Phil Scott, the Republican governor of Vermont, who's a bit of a political unicorn, signed a bill um, that makes permanent universal mail-in voting in Vermont, um, which was a, you know, several states have reforms like that. Washington is probably, I think, the most famous state. for Oregon, Colorado. Yeah. But Phil Scott made permanent a an emergency measure that had been passed last year during the pandemic uh, to make universal mail-in voting permanent in mm. Vermont. And it really reminded me that Republicans used to love mail-in they voting. They
2: used to love mail-in voting.
1: <laughs> mail-in voting was always something that really yeah. helped Republicans. Yeah, because guess
2: who votes by mail? Old people. Old people. <laughs> guess who they vote for? <laughs>
1: Republicans. <laughs> so... I thought that was an interesting bright spot. Yeah. I mean, I don't go to sleep at night hoping for more Phil Scotts, but it's good to see a couple of spots, and we really should praise and promote Republicans who are doing the right thing on on these issues. And Republicans, I mean, I guess you could argue Joe Manchin is one, but <laughs> Republicans who can really, he's, he's the opposite of this, but, you know, Republicans being successful in a state where their constituency looks very different, I mean, the vast majority of Vermonters are Democrats. There have also been some bright spots in Republican legislators in Kentucky and Oklahoma, which have also done some bad things, but of of extending early voting opportunities and making it early, easier for people to cure their absentee ballots, that kind of thing. So a, a rare
0: right <sighs> <moment>. Lucy Caldwell <laughs> with a dose of optimism and Vermont also has one of the highest vaccination rates in oh the they do that's yes. right yes and all I of think New in England like 80, Maine Vermont and even Massachusetts yeah. another Republican governor that's, so. right. that's right Charlie
1: Baker
2: that's right if only we could get them in the Senate but anyway <laughs> uh... I just want to uh, take a minute to talk about Politicology Plus, which is now here, and I'm really excited about this. It's in soft launch now. Um, We've been working on this for a long time. You both know that. Uh, This is part masterclass, part laboratory, part war room. This is, uh, first of all, everything that you're used to on the main Politicology podcast is not going away. It's still here. Um, this is an extra special space for our most enthusiastic listeners who want to go deeper, who want to learn to think like strategists, who want to become more effective and more savvy, uh, um, participants in this in this political process. So we've got episode formats like Tapped, which is going to include really brief recorded phone calls uh, that I'll make to strategists and and experts as news breaks, um, and get quick analysis from them. It will include. In enemies of democracy format, which is going to be exposés and backstories on some of the worst actors who are still uh, spreading Trumpism and weakening democracy, not just here in America, but all over the world. Lucy, you and I did one of those about Elise Stefanik not yeah. too long ago. So those episodes are going to get even deeper and uh, and more produced, and, and eventually we'll have a catalog of... These stories, so that when these bad actors pop up in the news and the headlines, you'll have a resource to go to and and learn what you need to know about what's driving them. Why are they doing this? Because a lot of these people, they're not all the same. They they have different motivations. Some of them, some of them have a very specific worldview, and they're trying to um, bend the world to that view. Some of them are just selfish. Some of them are self promoters. They're all in it for different reasons, but they're all. Um, threats that we need to pay attention to. We're also going to do Thought Lab episodes where we get a panel of people together, of top-shelf experts, where we'll talk about very um, forward-looking topics about, for example, the future of warfare, the misinformation crisis, and I'm really excited about those. They'll they'll be much longer-form conversations, Um, and there's something really special dropping next week. Uh, so stay tuned for that. You can find this at politicology.com slash plus. And before I let you go, where can people find you on the internet, Susan?
1: Well, th- that was a really good tease
0: from
2: right? oh! I just to say. <laughs> And it I'm, looks
1: beautiful. I'm it looks, really excited. It looks really awesome. I poked around it a, a cool. little bit yesterday, and it's really, really cool. I'm excited about the community you're building.
2: I'm really pumped about it. And uh, And, folks, you'll hear both of these ladies there as well. Indeed you will. Yeah. But
0: in the interim, yeah.
1: I'm at Del PercyOS on Twitter. And I'm at Lucy M. Caldwell on Twitter.
2: And I'm at Ron Seslo on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you're not already in our politicology plus community, you can unlock today's bonus segment and much more at politicology.com plus. If you have any questions for us, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. You can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.